Well, good morning. Uh, we are going to be starting our apologetics segment six uh, as we continue going through passages or verses that um, seem to be slightly or maybe even vastly misunderstood today. Uh, today, we're going to be going through two that one is a passage that I hope is going to instill a lot of hope and encouragement in you um, as to what has been given to us in Christ. Uh, the other one that we're going to go over is going to be one that is more of a exhortation, even a firm warning to believers today that I think, um, in my estimation, as I've talked with people about this over the last 15 to 17 years that I've really been studying the Word, and I've had questions on this in the beginning um, that I feel that God has answered for me and has put the puzzle pieces in place for me to understand. As I've talked to people about this, I've heard all sorts of reasonings around this verse that it doesn't actually mean what it says. But I'm going to challenge that theory um, today. So the first one we're going to hit is John 14, 2 through 4. Now this is one that a lot of people take a lot of hope in, um, but I believe that it's a hope that is for something that's yet to come when I believe that Jesus is referencing something that already has come. And that's going to make more sense, hopefully, as the Spirit leads and gives me words to speak and use you ears to hear um, what Jesus is really telling the apostles here. So let's set the stage a little bit. In John 14, uh, we're, you know, we're at this point where Judas has already kind of been discovered and he's already taken off because the, the, the Lord's Supper's already taken place. Jesus washed his feet and it was made known that he was the devil, right? Uh, a devil was among them. And so right now, he's already tucktailed and, and ran out. Jesus is still talking to the remaining 11. This is what he's talking to them in this upper room, if I remember correctly. I believe that this is spoken right after the Lord's Supper has taken place. Judas has already left, and it's being spoken to the eleven. And here's what he says. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may also, um, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. And so a lot of times, let me just tell you how this verse is oftentimes applied. Oftentimes people look at this as to say one day Jesus is going to come back and he's going to gather us up to himself and then we're going to be with him forever. And that is true. That Jesus will return. I don't believe it's a pre-trib rapture return. I believe that that's a... A doctrine that's been brought into um, the church over the last three or four hundred years that actually doesn't have a whole lot of merit in Scripture. If you really study the Scripture, there's not a whole lot of merit to the pre-trib rapture connotation. But however, whether it's pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, doesn't matter. In the sense that we know that Jesus will return. And he is going to return and he is going to gather his um, church and he is going to gather us together to take with him so that we may be with him forever. That is true. However, I don't believe that's just what Jesus is telling us here. In this context, Jesus is saying to them, and I'm going to go through and I'm going to read in just a little bit of what he's talking about, because later on he talks about a verse where he says in verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. What is he talking about? He is talking about his resurrection, his ascension. I'm sorry, not his ascension, his resurrection. 
He's talking about the fact that in a little bit, you're going to see me as dead. And the world will not see me, but I will come to you. You will think that I'm dead and all these last three years that we followed or that you have followed me, it has all been a sham. Or maybe I'm not who you really thought I was as the son of the living God. You might think that maybe I was just a prophet. Maybe I was just a man and you just wasted three years of your life. You're going to see me dead, but I will come to you. You will see me again. The world won't see me, but I will come to you. I will not leave you as orphans because that's exactly what's going to go through your heart and your mind when you see me up on that cross and you see me being placed in that tomb. And for three days, you're going to wonder, did I leave you? You see, I don't believe Jesus is talking about the fact that I go to prepare a place for you so that one day in future events, that at the end of all things, I'll come and I'll gather you to myself. I believe what he's talking about is that he says, I am going to prepare the way for you to be with me in the Father. That I go to prepare a place of salvation so that you could be with me so that where I am, you may also be. Now here's why I say that. You might look at that and say, well, that's kind of reading into it a little bit. But let's look at this. In verse 6, what does Jesus say in verse 6 when Thomas says, but um, he says this in verse 5. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to them, I am the way. I am the way to the Father. You don't come to the Father but through any other means but through me. What is Jesus talking about? He's talking about salvation. He's not talking about the redemption in the end or the redemption of our bodies. He's not talking about a pre-trib rapture or a post-trib rapture. He's not talking about glorification of the saints and how one day at the very end of all things we'll be glorified. He is talking about salvation. That unless I go, I cannot prepare the way to the Father. That's what he's referencing. We use John 14, 6 many times in terms of salvation. But somehow we miss the context of the passage because now we're, we're having two different contextual gleanings or takeaways from this passage. One, we're talking about the end of all things. And the other one, we're talking about the beginning of all things. But Jesus is referencing the beginning. That's the context. He says, you're going to see me dead. And you're going to think that I abandoned you. But I haven't. Take heart, because you will see me again. I will come to you. I will not leave you as those orphans. He's speaking to the eleven. So what's some other verses that we can actually pull into this? Because to me, this one's very clear. I, I don't personally know why or how people miss this today and teach it as if it's some future event that hasn't taken place. Look at, at what he says in um, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, I'm going through Ephesians right now in a men's study that I'm doing. And this is actually a verse that we camped out on a lot and spent probably 30 to 45 minutes just on this one verse. But listen to what he says in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Notice that it says he has blessed us, not that he will bless us in some futuristic sense. It is something that has occurred. And what's the position of its occurrence? In Christ Jesus. Let me, let me go back and read this again. What he says in verse 3. I go to prepare a place for you. I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am... You may also be. Well, where is Christ right now? 
He's seated at the right hand of the Father. Well, I'm going to look at verses 7, 9, 10, 11, 13, and then 22 through 23 because I want to read a few things. Remember, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. And what is our position? Well, let me share. Notice that it says that all the blessings have been given to us in the position of being in Christ Jesus. Fast forward to verse 7. Again, of Ephesians chapter 1. He says this. Um... In him, we have redemption through his blood. You go on to verse 9. He says this, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Go to verse 10. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Verse 11. In him, we have obtained an inheritance. Verse 13. When he says this, in him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed or marked with the promised Holy Spirit. Fast forwarding to, to verses 22 through 23, says this, And he put all things under his feet, meaning Jesus, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Who are we? We are the body of Christ Jesus. We are in him and he is in us. You see, this is an indisputable fact in Scripture that I am in Him, but it's one that I have to take by faith because physically I'm not necessarily with Him. But by faith, I take it to be a reality and a truth that I am in Him. Why? Because listen to what He says in Ephesians chapter 2, 4-7. through But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, meaning it was the power of God that brought about and rent our salvation in Christ. And then check out what He says right here. And raised us up with Him. Not and will raise us up with Him, but raised us, past tense, raised us up with Him. And seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. What is he talking about here? He says, you know what? While my body might be an earthly vessel right now in which the Spirit of God has now made me the temple of the living God by dwelling inside of me, I have to take it by faith that my position and my identity is in Christ. That I have been raised up with Him in those heavenly places so that where He is, I may also be. Jesus is referencing in John 14 that I have to go and make a way. Because right now, I have to die in order for that old covenant to be null and void and a new covenant be established because Hebrews 9 says that it cannot happen until I die. So I have to die as that perfect sacrifice before the way to the Father will be opened up through my blood. But once that way is opened up, once I have gone and prepared a place for you, once I have gone and I have now ascended to the right hand of the Father... I go so that you can be with me, so that where I am, you may also be. Brothers and sisters, we are in Christ. And He sits at the right hand of the Father, and we are in Him. And we take it by faith, so that when we go out there, we face the masses, the heavenly spiritual realm in which we wrestle against, which we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, we wrestle against the principalities and the authorities of this present darkness. 
That's what we wrestle against. And we wage war, not with carnal weapons, but with supernatural strength and power of the Almighty because we are in Christ. He has given us access to the arsenal of Christ. But we take that by faith. So in John 14, when he's referencing this, and he says, I go to prepare a place for you, it's essentially this. Just as a host prepares a place for the guests to come in so that everything is ready, that whenever you come in, then you can actually fellowship with them. That's exactly what Jesus did. He went to prepare a place so that we could abide with him. And while I might not be physically there because I have a race to run, I have a job to do, I have a faith that I need to fight for and that I need to keep until the end, spiritually and by faith, I take it to be a reality that I am at the right hand of the Father because Jesus is there and where he is there I also am with him. So I hope you take this passage to understand that not only will one day Jesus come, not only one day will He come and He will gather His church. Those who have made themselves ready, as Revelation talks about. Those who have walked in the righteous deeds that He has given us to walk in, in Christ. Those who have chosen to, by the blood of the Lamb and by their faithfulness to the end, conquer the devil. Those who endure to the end, who will be saved. As Matthew ten twenty two says, He will gather us. And He will bring us to Himself so that physically for all of eternity we will be with Him. And it won't have to be by faith because faith is in what is not seen, as Hebrews 11.1 1 says. But I want you to take an assurance that in the here and the now, that before that even takes place, we have already received everything we need for a life of godliness because we are in Christ, seated with Him in the heavenly places. That is our position. And when we forget that, or if we are ignorant to that, then we will live this life apart from the realities of what faith can accomplish. But when I choose to understand that the the passages like John 14 is not referencing something that is futuristic solely and primarily, it's referencing what has been accomplished in Christ, through Christ, and on behalf of Christ. And when I believe in that, it changes everything. And so, I pray that that is something that would bless you. Um, you know, you could also go and look at John seventeen twenty through 24 and another in which Jesus is praying the high priestly prayer. And I'm just going to read it briefly. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Referencing the apostles and then later, those who are going to believe in Christ through the apostles' word, us. He says, I'm not just praying just for the apostles. He says, here's what I'm praying for. I'm praying for my church. Anyone who at any point in all of time are going to believe in me through the word that the apostles are going to preach. He says this, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me the glory that you have given me. I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. And check this out. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. To see my glory that you have given me because you loved me. This again, he says, I'm praying for all those who will believe in me. All those from this point forward who will believe in me that they may be where I am. So I go to prepare a place as a host. 
so that I make everything ready so that you can come in to what I have accomplished and you can be with me and we can fellowship with one another and be one together. I will not leave you as orphans, he tells the apostles. I will come and you will see me. But I have to do this to prepare a place so that when I ascend to the right hand of the Father, you also may be with me. To me, that's a beautiful thing. And I hope that it gives you um, just this resolute hope in your heart and your mind as to what has been accomplished through Christ and what our position in Christ is. Now this next one I'm going to go through. And I've alluded to it actually several times in some of the other segments that I've done, but I haven't actually broken this one down. And so we're going to look at Hebrews 10, 26-31. This seems to be a reoccurring one that keeps coming back to me recently, um, in which I've had to have several discussions about this one. Um, and again, I've heard many things. Like, let me just put it this way. We, there's a, a church in my area that um, was doing a Bible study over Hebrews. And it was a, like a Sunday school pamphlet that they were doing from a guy named David Jeremiah. And, and they were going through chapter by chapter of the book of Hebrews. And so I remember one time my wife was, um, found this little, this little Sunday school lesson book. And she was like, huh, I wonder what this, what this dude has to say about Hebrews chapter 6 and Hebrews chapter 10. So she's flipping through and she finds Hebrews chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 7. Wait, what? Where was 6? So she's like, well, maybe it got ripped out or something, you know, whatever. So she looked at the page numbers, and the page numbers were sequential. Well, that's odd. It just completely skipped chapter 6. So then it went to 7, she went to 8, 9, 11. Wait, what? Check the page numbers again, sequential. This, this teaching that was going through Hebrews completely skipped 6 and 10. This mass-produced booklet that was supposed to teach the book of Hebrews skipped chapters 6 and 10. Arguably two of the most misunderstood passages in all of Scripture. And maybe not even misunderstood, but neglected. I've heard people talk about Hebrews chapter 10. Very popular. Um, I guess I called out the one guy. I'll call out this other guy. John MacArthur talks about Hebrews chapter 10, 26-31 as being a message to unbelievers. I'm going to prove to you that that's not true. But it's a rational reasoning to try to reason away the warning that's here because it doesn't fit with man's doctrine today. But that's not how we study scripture. We don't eisegetically go through and have our doctrine and then use scripture to try to prove our doctrine. We develop our doctrine exegetically as we read the scriptures and then say, huh, okay, that's what the scriptures are teaching, so here's what I have to believe. Instead of here's what I believe, let me use the scriptures to prove what I believe. And I believe that many people do that with Hebrews chapter 10, 26-31. So, this one's going to be a little bit of a lengthy one, and I've got... Um, probably about 20 to 25 minutes I'm going to try to keep it to. But I want to back up into the context, going all the way up into verse 19, because I think we need to establish one thing. He's writing to believers. The author is writing to believers. That's 
crystal clear throughout the entire book of Hebrews. The whole book was written as a as a, an, an attempt unto the believers to say, you cannot go back to Judaism to escape the persecution that both the Jews and the Romans are trying to bring upon you. You have got to maintain your faith in the person of Jesus Christ. You cannot go backwards. You cannot seek to escape Jesus Christ and say that I don't want to suffer for his name, so I'm going to go back and appease the Jews and appease the Romans and go back to Judaism as an effort or an attempt to um, not have to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. And he says that's just the same as if you deny him. As Paul gives a message to Timothy bound in 2 Timothy chapter 2, in which he only writes to Timothy and he says if we deny him, he will deny us. Now this is bringing in a a whole lot that I'm sure your mind is racing with. Like what is this guy saying? If you're new to this podcast channel, then I'd encourage you to go back and listen to some of my other ones. But here's one thing you got to know about me. I will not shy away from truth of God's word. I will not shy away from difficult topics. I will not shy away from declaring things that might be controversial, that might be even unorthodox in today's um, Christian walks and, and realm. I will speak things that need to be spoken, and I will do it passionately. But I'll also do it with an understanding that I know I don't have everything right. But here's the deal. If I'm wrong, you're going to have to prove me wrong with the text. I'm not going to listen to your thought or your opinion or your perception if you do not back it with Scripture. And here's the deal that I often find. I find redirection. I pose this passage to people many times. And you know what I usually get? But what about this passage? Okay. Let me answer that one real quick, and then let's go back to this and give me an account for what this passage is saying. But what about this? Or what about this thought? Or what about this verse? Or what about this? Can you not give me an answer for what this is actually teaching? You see, people, when they don't know, when they don't have an answer, they redirect to other things. This one, Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, all sorts of ones are out there. Romans 8, 17. I get all kinds of people who just redirect. But you know what? If you can't have an answer for Hebrews 10, 26-31, then maybe you need to change your doctrine instead of redirecting to other things that you think fit your doctrine. So let's get into this. Verse 19. I want to get the context of what he's referencing right before it. Therefore, brothers... Now, that's not a word that is used for unbelievers. Let's just get that straight real quick. This is a word that is primarily, if not unequivocally and and always used in the New Testament as a reference to believers. Therefore, brothers, that's who he's writing to, since we, here's another thing, the author includes himself. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. So here we have that the author is including himself with the intended audience of people who have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. That means that the audience and the author both have the blood of Jesus applied to their account. He goes on and he says, By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, this goes back even in John 14, the new and the living way that he opened for us. So that we might be where he's at. And he did it how? Through his flesh on that cross. He went to prepare a place. And he goes on and he says, And since we, by the way, even in verse 20, 
that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Notice the mutuality that's there. I don't even know if that's a word, but it fits. It isn't exclusive to only God. It is inclusive of both God and the responsibility of man. God is faithful. God will do his part, but we have a part to play as well. What is that? To hold fast our confession without wavering, even in the midst of suffering, which is the premise of the book of Hebrews. That we have a job to do inclusive of what God says, I will fulfill every part of my promises that I have said if you are faithful to fulfill your end. And ultimately it boils down to one thing. You hold the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Because against such a confession, the gates of hell can't even prevail. But you have a job to hold that confession. He said, let us hold fast the confession of our hope, which Jesus is our hope. He's our hope of glory. Without wavering, for he promises faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I could spend an entire podcast just on verse 25, 24 through 25. Because I see it as a plague today in the church that we don't do that. But I'm going to move forward in 26 to 31 because that's more of my topic today. So we look at all these various things and obviously the context is written to believers. How somebody can look at 26 to 31 and come away with the fact that this is written to unbelievers is, is beyond me. I don't, I don't understand it. And I'm about to prove to you at least three things just within these five or six verses that to me prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is referencing this warning to believers. And I get it. If I have to acknowledge that this is a warning to believers, then it puts a whole lot of some of these other doctrines that are popular and orthodox today in the church, it puts them into question. And so I get it that that's a scary and uncomfortable thing sometimes because we can think that we have an understanding of truth, but then once something rattles that, it rattles the whole foundation. It's, it's kind of like when an earthquake hits and you might have a house and in this house there's many rooms and compartmentalized areas of truth and we have our, our, our truth of what we believe on eschatology and we have our truth and what we believe about salvation. We have our truth about righteousness and justification and, and, and grace and we have all these different rooms about where these truths are. If that earthquake rattles one room, it rattles all of it. So I get that this can be complex and it can be delicate and it can be something that's uncomfortable. We have to face the uncomfort or the discomfort that's in some of these things because it's not about us having our truth proved. It's about us coming in alignment with God's truth. And so listen to what he says. Four. He says all these things are things that we have received in Christ. And all these things are things that we have to do in Christ. We have to hold that confession. We have to not give up meeting together. We have to persevere. We have to endure and keep moving forward, pressing forward, as Paul says in Philippians 3, so that by any means possible, he will attain the resurrection from the dead. He says, I haven't already obtained it. 
The promise has been given to me, but I have not already obtained that promise because I have a job to do. And I will do that job to make sure that in the end, when I stand before him, I will attain the resurrection from the dead and be with him for all of eternity. You might say, well, that sounds work-based. Well, call it what you want. I call it scripture. I call it teaching truth. And you call that work-based all you want to. But the reality is, it's truth. Because it's exactly what Paul says in Philippians 3. But listen to what he says. Four, so he's linking it to the previous intent that he was establishing. And then he says this. If we. So he doesn't say you. As if this might be a warning for people who maybe aren't genuine believers. He includes himself in the warning. It is impossible to say that this is referencing unbelievers. Because the author includes himself in the warning. For if we go on sinning deliberately, let me break down that word for you real quick. I'm not a Greek scholar, but, but I'm going to you know, break this down, just what it says. Okay, And so the word that's used here is hekosios, and it's this, willful, as opposed to ignorantly or from weakness. He said, this isn't, this isn't talking about sins in which maybe I was just in a weak state, beat down from life, beat down from, from the storms and the waves of life. And I just, in a moment of weakness, I just gave in and I stumbled into something. And it wasn't my intent. It wasn't what I wanted to do. I was just weak in doing it. And it wasn't from not knowing what the truth was. It's, it is in, I'm sorry, it says that for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving a knowledge of the truth, it's like I have a knowledge of the truth, I know that this is right, but I choose to not just in a manner of weakness, but a willful engaging in sin, knowing it's sin. James 4.17, the one who knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. If I engage in that deliberately, willfully, not from ignorance or from weakness, But if I engage in it willfully, remember, the author includes himself. He says this, after receiving knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment. What what does he mean by this? Well, I'm going to tell you what I believe he means. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 10 says this, for we, Paul includes himself, must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. He's not referencing rewards being taken away and rewards being given. He is referencing a fearful expectation of judgment as well as the rewarding for the good. Now this fits into what Romans 2.6 says, that he will render to each one according to his works. This goes into what Galatians 6, 7-10 says. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. If you sow to the flesh, you'll reap corruption. If you sow to the, to the spirit, you'll reap eternal life. And we will reap, Paul says, if we do not give up. You will give an account for your works. This concept of past, present, future sins being wiped away at the moment of salvation when you come into Christ. Let me just tell you, it's not biblical. It doesn't fit. It sounds good. And I can take some scriptures and make it fit. But it doesn't fit in the fullness. And this is one of those verses that shows it doesn't fit in the fullness. Because if I take it for what it says, that if I as a believer, born again, been given the Spirit of God, if I choose 
to deliberately sin, he says that I am not going to cover that sin with my blood. You will give a fearful expectation of judgment. 2 Corinthians 5.10, I just read that one. Listen to what he says in verse 11 right after. Therefore, knowing that I will stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account for what I have done in the body, whether good or evil, knowing that if I sin deliberately, I believe as Paul is alluding to, if I do evil, which sinning deliberately would be considered evil, guys. He says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. You see, he's attaching the concept of standing before Christ. He's attaching fear along with it. I believe this is also why he talks about Romans 14, 12. And he says that Paul, again, we will all stand before the judgment seat of, of God. You can even go into 2 Corinthians six fourteen, In which he says a very similar type passage. In which he says this. <clears throat> Just paraphrasing what he's talking about. Don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Don't get entangled in the dark deeds of the flesh. Don't get entangled in things of this world. You need to be holy as he is holy in all of your conduct. Because then he goes on and says this in 17. He says, for we are the temple of the living God. You need to make sure that you are not taking the spirit of God which is in you. And you in Christ and yoking it to things that don't belong with him. And then he goes on, he says, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I'll be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. Meaning that you need to be holy in all of your conduct. You need to be separate from the ways of the world, from the things of the world, from the deeds of the world. You need to not walk in darkness, but walk in light. Because if you walk in the light, you have fellowship with the Son and His blood cleanses you from all sin. But that is only if you walk in the light. It is not an altar call, salvific type thing in which you come pray a prayer. Now all of a sudden you're in the light. John says in 1 John 1, you have to walk in the light for these things to be applied to your account. These promises that God has given to us, you have to walk in the light for them to be true in your life. And that's why it says, therefore go out from their midst to be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. And I'll be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Again, he brings up the concept of fear, because if we don't walk out this salvation, or as Philippians 2 talks about, if we don't work out this salvation with fear and trembling, knowing it's God who lives in us, it's His Holy Spirit that dwells in us, and we shouldn't trifle about that. We shouldn't just count as, as a common thing that the Spirit of God is in us. And what we choose to yoke ourselves to in this life is yoking the Spirit and bringing Him into that. And God says, I will not allow that. That's why I yearn jealously over the spirit that I've made to dwell in you. So the author of Hebrews is saying, guys, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving a knowledge of the truth, he's not going to cover that. You will give an account for that. Praise God, he's given us the blood of Christ to be able to say, if I confess that sin, he's faithful and just to forgive me of that sin and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. I don't have to give an account to it just because I committed it. I have opportunity through the blood of Christ to have it wiped away and to have it washed from my ledger. But if I don't, if I don't confess that sin, if I don't repent from that, if I don't humble myself in the mighty hand of God, 
won't turn from that and cleanse my hands and purify my hearts as a double-minded person who's both living in the Spirit and trying to live in the flesh. If I don't turn from that, then I will give a fearful account. This is what the author of Hebrews is saying. This is not a salvation passage. This is not an apostasy passage. It's not a salvation passage in the sense that I lose my salvation because I commit an intentional sin. All this is, is this is a judgment passage that you will come under judgment and it will be a fearful thing for you to stand before the living God one day. Because if you have intentional, deliberate, willful sin on your ledger, you will give an account and it will be fearful. He goes on, he says, And a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. That's a word that means the enemies of God. And fittingly enough, James 4 is another passage that I would like to go through at some point on this apologetic study. But I'm going to allude to it briefly here. It says, you adulterous people. You know the only people who commit adultery against God are people who are in covenant with Him through the blood of Jesus Christ. You can't commit adultery against Him if you are um, an unbeliever. He says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to make themselves a friend of the world makes themselves an enemy of God. That's a warning to believers. That's where he gets the, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us. And then he says, but he gives more grace. And that's not a grace to just simply overlook or over, um, just to wash over those sins and just say, ah, you know, I was just kind of kid. Yeah, you adulterous people, you make yourself an enemy. But you know what? My grace covers it. It'll be fine. That's not at all what he says. You see, if you misidentify and misdiagnose what grace is, then you misdiagnose that passage among many others. If you think that grace is just unmerited favor in which God's going to look at you in the mud and just cover over that and be like, it's okay, my child. I know you're a sloppy mess, but it's okay. I'm just going to overlook that because the blood of Jesus does that. Rather, what the passage is saying in James 4 is that His grace will be given to you if you humble yourself under His mighty hand. If you seek to repent and you admit that guilt, He says, then my grace will empower you to overcome and to repent correctly indeed. That's why He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. He says, you need to repent But first, your heart needs to come in alignment with understanding that that is sin. And you've committed adultery against me. And I will give you the greater grace to overcome that sin, not to overlook it. Which is a huge difference between the two. He says, you're going to be a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. The enemies, the ones who would set themselves against him willfully. And yes, a believer can do that because the author includes himself in this. But there's more. He goes on and he says, Anyone who is set aside, you read the King James, you're going to see it in the past tense. And I would come into an agreement with that because we're not under the law of Moses anymore. Rather, I think the author is drawing our attention to what took place for those who were under the law, under the old covenant, outside of Christ. If you deliberately sinned, what was the punishment? To be stoned to death. Pretty much across the board, that was the punishment. If you intentionally committed adultery, if you intentionally did things that violated, whether it be the Sabbath or whether whatever it might be, murder, if you did something that was an intentional, deliberate act against the decrees of God, you were to be taken outside the city walls and stoned 
to death. So he says this, anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment? I want you to think about this. Even under the new covenant, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified? Notice the past tense. He says, under the, under the law of Moses, he says, yeah, there was, there was some pretty harsh punishment. Being stoned to death. If you were intentionally doing this. Remember, the priest did not go into the, um, to the Holy of Holies to offer sacrifices once a year for the intentional sins of the people. It was the unintentional. The intentional sins of the people did not get covered by that blood. They were still God's people. And there was still an atonement for those unintentional ones. But the intentional ones did not have a blood that covered them. Same way in this new covenant. The intentional sins that we commit. Not from just moments of weakness. Not from from ignorance of not knowing that it was sin. But the intentional sins that we do will not be covered by the blood of Jesus. We might still be his people. We might still um, be in covenant with him. But we will give an account for those intentional sins. Which means not all past, present, future sins were forgiven at the cross. You might have access for it to be forgiven. But not all of them were forgiven. Only your past ones were cleansed. As Romans 3.25 says that he cleansed over um, those past sins. But your future sins... Those are ones that you will have to give an account for unless, 1 John 1, 9, unless you confess and he's faithful to forgive and cleanse you from unrighteousness. But he goes on and he says this, one has trampled underfoot the Son of God who has profaned the blood of the covenant, which basically means that he's counted it as common, not as honorable and sacred as what it actually is. It's a person who has said, oh yeah, man, praise, praise God for the blood, praise, praise him for it, but then you walk in intentional sin. This is why in 1 Corinthians 11, when he talks about the Lord's Supper, and please don't miss this, he says that the one who eats and drinks of the Lord's Supper without discerning his body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why some of you are sick and have even died. You see, he's referencing believers. And he says, if you've got intentional sin in your life, but then you go and you eat and drink of the cup and the bread of the Lord in recognition to what he has done on your behalf, profaning the blood of the covenant, if you will, you're eating and drinking judgment on yourself. That's why some of you are sick and have even died is because you treated the covenant of God through the blood of Jesus Christ as common and not as holy and sacred as what it should be. And God says, I will show you no mercy on that unless you repent. He goes on and he says this, by which he was sanctified. Again, notice the past tense and it says, and outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge the world. Is that what he says? That's not what he says. The Lord will judge his people. Well, isn't that fascinating? And in verse 30, he says that we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. You know, the only people that are his people are believers. You might say, well, what about, what about the Jews? The Jews are God's. No, they're not. I actually cannot stand it. I believe that it's, it's a, 
an infiltration of the devil's teaching in the church today to say that the Jews are still God's people. And here's why. Because if I say that the Jews are still God's people, then that means that they can come unto God by some other way other than Jesus Christ. And what that does is it makes Jesus a liar. Because in John 14, 6, as we just read, he says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the light. And no one comes to the Father but through me. You cannot belong to the Father through any other means. I don't care if it's an Abrahamic covenant. I don't care if it's through Isaac. I don't care if it's through Moses. I don't care if it's through the ancestry or the lineage of being a Jew. You cannot come to God unless you come through Jesus Christ. Otherwise, you make him a liar. And I'm not prepared to say Jesus is a liar. So if you're one of those who's out there who's trying to teach that the Jews are still God's people, that they still belong to him in covenant, that they still are his people, part of the family of God, then I would encourage you to go read the scriptures, go read Romans 11, and somehow you're going to have to have a justification for John 14, 6, because Jesus himself says, no one comes to the Father but through him. He is the only way. So you and I will have a problem if you want to call Jesus a liar and say that the Jews are still God's people. Because that means that there's two parallel covenants running side by side. One is the way to belong to God through Jesus and the other one is to belong to God through the Abrahamic covenant. But then that makes Jesus a liar. And then you and I will have to have some words in humility. And so he goes on and he says, he will judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Here's my question. How is it, this word empipto that's, that's there, it means to descend, to fall from, a, from an upward location. Okay? It's distinct from the word parapipto, which means to be beside someone and to fall. This is simply just to descend from an upward location. Okay? Parapipto, the only time that one's used is in Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. But here's what this word indicates. To fall from an ascended location. Let me ask you something. How are you going to fall if you've never actually ascended? How is it that you are going to fall if you haven't actually been raised with Christ? You see, the only way for it to be a fearful thing, to fall into the hands of the living God, is to have been with Him. To have been raised with Christ. And then you have chosen to not walk in light, but then to walk in darkness. Therefore, the truth is not in you. And it doesn't mean that you are an unsaved you know, person. Because obviously, the author is including himself in this. So he's saying the warning is for all. But then he even goes on into verse 32. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened. Let me just tell you. You go read 32 through 37. And I want to tell you that I know probably 95% of Christians today in America that I've had interactions with don't even stand, don't even hold a candle to this list of what they've done. Most people today, if you break into their house, if you get onto their property and you're trying to take something from them, oh, you're going to retaliate. You're going to defend what you think is yours. And you'll use force if necessary. What does it say about them? He says, you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Obviously, this is a terminology for believers. 
But what does he say? He said, you joyfully accepted it when somebody broke into your place and they stole your stuff. You joyfully accepted it. You didn't try to defend yourself. You didn't try to, to take out a gun and shoot somebody because they were trying to take your TV. Thinking somehow you were justified because the laws of America tell you that you're able to do that. When the laws of God through Jesus Christ and the reflection we have of, of the cross says otherwise. You see, it's obvious that these people are believers. And he's warning them. Do not engage in willful sin because you showed the fruit in the beginning. You did things that most people weren't even willing to do today. But you need to heed this warning. And you could look at verse 39 and you could try to make a case to say, well, see, see, he's not actually referencing the, these, that this is, this is just all hypothetical. It's all just theoretical. Let me just tell you, that's not what he's saying in 39. If you, he's calling them to battle and to take up arms and to start doing what they need to be doing. And warning them, don't drop your swords, don't drop your shields, keep the whole armor of God on. Because you have a devil that's out there that's trying to steal your soul. And so this is a battle cry. This is one of those exhortations that he's giving to them and saying, you know what? We are not going to be among those who perish because we are going to have faith and preserve our souls. Notice that it's not just simply God who preserves them. It's their faith. This is why I think it's in 1 Peter 1 or 2 Peter 1 where he says that we are guarded by God's power through faith for salvation ready to be revealed. Again, it's not exclusive of our responsibility, but inclusive of it. We have a job to do. And all this author is doing in verse 39 is trying to bring them a call to arms to say, Hey guys, that's not going to be us. We're going to win this battle. We're going to win this war. And we're going to go out there with our swords drawn high. We're going to fight for our king. We're going to engage in this spiritual battle. And we will be victorious. But what he says in 39 does not negate what he says in 26 through 31. And we need to stop trying to reason our ways around it. And accept it for what it says. And instead of saying this is a message to unbelievers, or instead of negating it altogether, or ignoring it altogether, which by the way, would be an intentional sin. Instead of doing all those things, we need to accept it, and we need to bow the knee to it, and we need to form our doctrines off of what the text says. Not have our doctrines in place, and then gather the text to it. Y'all be blessed.